This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'll start with a quotation. <clears throat> well may truth be, be oppressed, thou permitting. But suppressed it can never be, because as thou sayest, heaven and earth shall fail, but thy word shall not fail. As some of you I'm sure will recognize, that comes from the writings of St. Augustine. <clears throat> and my claim today is that this, this scattershot paper I'm going to present is according to Augustine's mind in some sense. Um, arch foe as he was of lying, and especially of lying about religion. It's not merely philosophical, let alone theological, except in Augustine's sense that it's often helpful to start with non-Christian notions and, if appropriate and perhaps necessary, <clears throat> to proceed to Christian ones. It'll include bits of amateur sociology, amateur theology, and even amateur literary criticism. Such variation is edifying for at least three reasons. First, because in philosophy, as distinct from logic, there are no naked arguments. That is, arguments where, whose premises do not carry baggage, which needs to be identified if their true implications are to be understood. All philosophical arguments, in fact, carry baggage. Secondly, because truth seems to be too important to be left to the mercies of at least a large number of modern philosophers and theologians. Thirdly, because some philosophical and theological truths, and not only those of a scientific nature, may be inaccessible if at the moment we lack some of the necessary equipment to recover them. Broadly speaking, I want to argue three themes. One, that no epistemological arguments can disprove the existence of truth, though they may encourage us to ignore it. That at least in the case of moral and aesthetic truths, unless that truth is seen to be objective, no evaluations of life or art are plausible. And we have to resort to some form of obfuscation. That is, we have to lie. Thirdly, that as Augustine and Nietzsche realized, apart from being logically impossible, the denial of truth entails the denial of God. One, truth, existence, and knowledge of truth. Plato <coughs> is uh, going to be an important backstop to this paper. So let us start by descending to his cave as described in the Republic. That is, from the abstract to the earthy, and in this case, to the wisdom of our politicians. A few years ago, Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's press secretary, laid claim to a minor place in the history books with a statement, in the Labour Party, we don't do God, which for Augustine, of course, would imply we don't do truth. Yet Herbert Campbell himself might have designated truth, and one of his colleagues, of course, claimed that the job of a spin doctor is, quote, to create truth. He probably would have declined to assert that truth doesn't exist. Otherwise, he shouldn't have been, or seemed to be angry, when people accused him of lying. 
And as a political advisor, he certainly knew what lying is. I remember an Australian ex-cabinet minister turned late vacation priest replying to an earnest young Catholic in a forum about morality and politics. When asked what he would have done as Chancellor of the Exchequer in certain financial circumstances, gave the truthful answer, lie, of course. Yet despite the fact that we all know that we can be lied to or about, we yet can hear voices of the chattering description say or imply that the only thing that is true is that there is no such thing as truth. Perhaps what they're trying to say is that the only thing we think we know is that it's impossible to know whether we know anything or not. The position of those in the ancient world who were called pyramists, who believed that to reach this conclusion is a guarantee of happiness and freedom from anxiety. We talked about as odd as a certain advertisement blazoned on London buses not too long ago, reading, God probably doesn't exist, so get on and enjoy your life. We must be cautious about the implications of what we think we know. Epistemological claims have no necessary connection with existence claims, not least because there's no logical reason why there shouldn't be many facts which are intelligible, but not to the human mind. So note that the careful pyramist does not deny truth. He is strictly agnostic both about whether it exists and about the whether he can know what it is. Hence, we should refer to absolute truth deniers as desiderate pyramists, a relation, that is, of the pucker animal. For even if we create truth, there's something true which we have created. Every creation is what it is and not another thing. And we seem always to assume that it's possible to lie. But perhaps to deny objective truth is an epistemological, not an ontological claim meaning that it's not possible to find an objective standpoint, a view from nowhere, from which to view truth and falsehood. Among would-be truth deniers, we may distinguish then those who are adamant that objective truth does not exist, those who say that it may exist, but it's unknowable by us, and those who say that if and only if it's created by us, does it exist. Yet, of course, in every case, if Proposition P is a lie, it's true, it's a truth, but it's somehow untrue. Ancient pyramids were less reckless than some of their modern counterparts. Our desiderate pyramids often commit themselves to one of those implausible and counterintuitive inferences about the nature and functions of language to which we've seen Campbell's colleague bear witness. One of these was studied in a justly esteemed article by Harry Frankfurt a few years ago entitled On Bullshit. Frankfurt's point was that there's a category of human discourse of theoretically endless duration to which the categories of truth and falsehood are completely irrelevant. The aim is to give the impression of relevance while committing oneself to nothing at all, either because one is trying to evade committing oneself to anything at all, or because there is nothing at all, or at least in the area of the discourse in progress, to which commitment should be given. Another of Blair's henchmen, Robin Cook, New Labour's self-styled ethical foreign secretary, gave a surprisingly frank aperçu into how to handle a media interview. Quote, 
The art of the interview is to talk for an hour without saying anything too interesting, close quotes, as perhaps I'm doing now. But of course, it must seem interesting, which is where we note the possible irrelevance of the categories of truth and falsehood. How can you tell whether a politician is lying? Answer, see if he moves his lips. That misses the key point. A politician may be no more lying than telling the truth, just bullshitting. But of course, in avoiding telling the truth, he must evince some recognition that there is a truth to tell. The idea of truth seems rather hard to dispense with, as apparently deeply implicated in every form of ordinary discourse. But if Augustine, following the words of Jesus, is right that truth is to be found with God, then those who deny God must in some wise deny truth also. In his book, Real Presences, George Steiner argues that the denial of syntactical intelligibility is a tacit denial of God. And the same point, of course, has been more famously made, with different implications, obviously, though, by Nietzsche. Quote, we have not got rid of God because we have not got rid of grammar. Close quotes. Indeed, it's important to recognize how radically destructive of discourse even implicit denial of truth actually is, and to consider whether if to deny some or all truth and intelligibility is to deny God, whether the converse also applies. I want to look a bit further at this often neglected point about bullshit. As we've seen, it's a form of discourse for purposes other than truthfully or untruthfully pontificating its aim being primary to confuse rather than to misinform. Though it may be a catechistic or parasitic function of language, there are no surprising conclusions to be drawn from that. Language has all sorts of functions, not least out of arousing emotional responses. But that, however, does not eliminate the assumption that one of its other functions, perhaps indeed its primary function, is to point towards what the speaker believes to be the truth. Thus, we can challenge the claim that we can know what, that what we can know determines what there really is with two kinds of objection. The first is that there's no a priori reason why this claim should be true. The second, that the existence of other purposes of language than that of recording what is the case have no bearing on whether language is an appropriate tool for disclosing truth. Indeed, the phenomenon we call bullshit indicates that those who deploy it are aware of what they are doing, namely determining not to speak what is true, nor for that matter what they believe to be false. Then have those desiderate pyramids who deny the existence of any truth anywhere further to go. They usually rely on two moves, one of two moves. The first I might call metaphysical, or perhaps counter-metaphysical. The other, genealogical. The latter, at least in its formalized version, is largely dependent on Nietzsche, as well as being less interesting, philosophically that is, rather than sociologically. So I'll comment on genealogy first. The key move normally made by genealogists is dogmatic. That is, that all human activity is determined by a conscious or unconscious concern with power and manipulation, or in the earlier Hobbesian version of the same theme, with the securing of one's personal survival. The two versions converge in that one's own preservation, physical or intellectual, in what amounts to a zero-sum game, is viewed as tied in with controlling and manipulating other people. There are at least two objections to that. 
The first, that there is no reason to believe that all human behavior is driven solely by considerations either of power or of self-preservation, even if such considerations form part of the motivation for many of our individual actions. That the Hobbesian as well as the deconstructionist requires all our actions to be ultimately, ultimately motivated by the search for the power to preserve ourselves or impose ourselves on others is merely an assertion of an ideological dogma. And that's a fact where the search for truth is thought of as conscious or unconscious. So the search for power is thought of as conscious or unconscious. The second objection to much genealogical reason is equally conclusive, namely, even if it's true that, the moral, that moral claims are motivated largely or entirely by the desire to dominate or to survive, that has no bearing on whether what we assert about the truths of morality is correct. That I assert P because I want to dominate tells us nothing about the truth or falsehood of P. Facts can't be immediately inferred from our attitudes, beliefs or wishes, conscious or, un or subconscious, not even if those beliefs or wishes about our own psychology or that of others are in fact correct. Interesting though much genealogical talk may be about the mental state of philosophers and non-philosophers, they are of little help in pursuing, let alone identifying, objective truth, as distinct, that is, from the historical question of why we believe or disbelieve what we do. Most genealogists are guilty of a simple category mistake. They assume psychological, with they confuse psychological with ontological information. Instead of inquiring whether proposition P is true, they ask, where are you coming from? The best that can be said for that approach is that if we know where someone is coming from, we may better appreciate why he can't understand the correct solution to a puzzle. But if we understand why he can't understand the right answer, we are assuming that there is a right answer for him to grasp. Of course, to understand intellectual history, whether of a culture or of an individual, it's necessary to recognize what may be the mental roadblocks which at any time impede further intellectual advance. A much more interesting and more traditional objection to the possibility of our acquiring knowledge of what is true, though and again not to the existence or otherwise of objective truth, is that it's impossible to capture the essence of a thing, a weaker version of the objection that there are no objects or essences to capture. Though all claims about the possibility of objective truth depend on their existence. Both versions of this objection are false. And see how hard it is even to talk about our subject without the F word, i.e. false. For again, whether or not we can capture the essence of something has little to do with whether we can know anything about it. If someone asks me what I know about person X, I might list a number of sterling qualities. But although my list might be largely correct, I should not have captured the essence of X, even if he has one. You can look at this list of his attributes and still ask always, is that all there is to him? Essences, if they exist, are the subject of definitions. And definitions, though useful, are mere descriptions in terms of class membership. As Aristotle said, the individual is known either by mental or physical perception. He, she, or it has no definition. So grasping an essence, as essences are normally understood, 
will give us only partial understanding of the individual to whom we've tried, whom we've tried to capture. But I repeat, we do not need to know what the essence of an object is to know, in some useful sense of know, how to answer the question, what's that? That is, to be able to identify something and put our identification to use in a specific and definable context. That is, if for religious reasons, let's say, I want a, I want a stone to throw at an adulteress, I don't need to know the molecular structure of the stone I'm looking for, but I really am looking for a stone, as my victim would eventually discover. The fact, if it is a fact, that I cannot capture an essence tells me nothing about whether essences exist, and hence whether statements about them can be true or false. That's still the case whether essences, if they exist, are static, or as some, say David Odenberg, think, but it could be the case, dynamic. Two, <coughs> truth in ethics. Given the notion of knowing in a context as the nature of stones, the full-blown desiderate Pyrrhonist thesis to which I've alluded has few devotees of strict observance among professional philosophers. These may prefer to treat most knowledge as true belief, and as much as it can be tested empirically or analytically. But that allows them, they may suppose, to be more skeptical about truth in ethics than aesthetics. And in the minds of those for whom such interests are primary, the stronger version of the skeptical thesis about truth will often flourish, making arise strange and counterintuitive consequences for any sort of evaluation. That is, for the mere use of words like better or worse. Hence, for example, in trendy university departments of English, where attacks on the semi-traditional canon of great writers, together with ideas about authorship being socially determined to the point that the author virtually disappears, the denial of truth is enabled to sport a part philosophical, part sociological fig leaf. I shall return to this literary version of the disappearance of truth after looking at value judgments in a wider context. For the traditional study of literature and a literary canon does involve value judgments. Jane Austen is by and large held to be a better novelist than the author of, quote, Perils of a Jet Set Virgin, close quotes. So it is that to that wider context of value judgments that we must turn, for while he or she who denies that water, so far as we know, is a compound of hydrogen and oxygen, will normally be written of as a nutter, in being assumed that the empirical testing of hypothesis is a guide to at least provisional truth, the philosopher who claims that beauty is simply the eye of the beholder, or that moral propositions are always relative, being determined by the judgment, not the discernment of the speaker, will be paid hundreds of thousands of pounds, or more likely dollars, in adulation of his shrewd, shrewd reductionism. Shrewd because he's shown that all truth claims in ethics, for example, are baseless, and by implication, that there are no absolutes, absolutes as right and wrong. But how could there be if each of us determines from a purely personal or communitarian point of view that action A is immoral? All actions, qua actions, are amoral, but we or they select which are to be labelled moral or immoral, whether by individual preference or by the conventions of the society in which we live, or ideologically, hope to live. It's become the habit to term appropriate or inappropriate behaviours we used to call right or wrong. In the world to which I now refer, we are living not philosophically, that is by justifying our beliefs in terms of their truth value, but pragmatically, 
that is, in terms of their effectiveness in bringing about the sort of society we want to promote. Of course, some actions will be seen as truly effective, others not. Generally speaking, effectiveness is judged in a social rather than a solipsistic context. But since we are communicating, indeed syntactical animals, it's possible for, impossible for us to live intentionally or unintentionally, promoting our beliefs and thus contributing to the constant reshaping of what seemed to be conventional consensus. One of the difficulties of such pragmatic relativism is revealed when we are asked, for example, of the Holocaust, how we explain our disgust. Did we merely dislike what happened? Did we think that it was not in the interest of the greater number of us? Did we just think it was irrational? Probably not though it might seem that we should speak in some such pragmatic terms. Indeed, we tend to make rather strong truth claims. We're inclined to say, that was just wrong. Indeed, when to the question, uh, when to the question did Hitler do anything wrong, <coughs> a well-known philosopher replied, I would have to say no, he lost his audience. But his point was well taken and honest. In his view, the word wrong did not apply seeming to refer to some non-mind-dependent reality which he thought we had learned to live to have no further truck with. Though his audience disapproved, many of them could not have explained why his reply was mistaken. Most members of the public, educated or not, have brought into the notion, have bought into the notion that all values, aesthetic and moral, are relative and are content to leave it at that. If challenged, they may say, Relativity works for me, perhaps nursing the forlorn hope that its rationality could be vindicated by some airport professor if he set his mind to it. But how exactly might he do that? Is there any argument which, he might, which might avoid the dreaded appeal to some kind of transcendental metaphysics? Three, an argument alternative from John Locke. Genealogy is less popular as yet among Anglo-American philosophers than on the continent of Europe. A more traditional seeming route being often preferred by those wishing to deny objective value in ethics. It involves claiming that evaluative terms resemble John Locke's secondary qualities, these being defined by Locke as follows, I quote from his essay 2.8, quote, secondary qualities are nothing in the things themselves but powers to produce various sensations, close quotes. Such sensations, Locke believes, arise in our minds, all hardwired, we might now say, in much the same way, when we meet up with certain facts or events. Example, they may make us think we are, we are seeing certain colours. Similarly, some now claim, with moral beliefs, particular experiences induce a sense of right and wrong and generate a sense of the value or disvalue of what we meet up with, our mind being a blank sheet curiously capable of being aware of itself when receiving better imbibing specific impressions within some particular social context. Hence, certain impressions seem to be not only objective, but also binding in ways dependent on the society in which we belong. Some would claim for them a wider, even a universal force, but a difficulty arises immediately. Why do some people grasp this newborn sense of obligation? while others, perhaps those we call criminals, don't. We then may briskly drag out a vague reference to nature or more likely nurture to dispose of the problem.
It's hard to see what the invocation of Locke amounts to or why it's thought to solve problems of moral norms or obligations. Ordinary Lockean settling equality is our sense affecting characteristics of physical objects. Presumably value judgments are supposed to depend on abstract rather than physical qualities of those objects or experiences. The combination of a thinking subject and, say, a potentially aesthetic object produces certain ideas about the aesthetic worth of that object. But the parallel is far from exact. In the case of ordinary secondary qualities, as understood by Locke, the sense organ meets a specific sort of physical object in a specific circumstance and views and interprets it in a particular way, perhaps by setting a colour. But for value recognition, the mind will be the primary cause of the moral or aesthetic characteristics identified. For although in sense perception there's a meeting of physical objects, both of which say the eye of the tree can be identified with a distinct and with a distinct location, with value perception there is no such meeting, unless, that is, aesthetic and moral reactions and judgments are either mechanistic, in which case there's only the illusion of judgment, or simply recognitions of pleasures and pains associated with certain experiences which we interpret under a moral category as good and bad. This latter solution is called emotivism, and its difficulties are well enough known. For starters, it does not explain how we can intelligibly say, quote, I don't like this, but it's clearly the right thing to do, close quote. Which, deals, which leads to the conclusion that to compare value predicates with Lockean secondary qualities is an elegant way of saying that we ourselves read them consciously or at first subconsciously into our experiences, whether objects or events. Neither their only significant relationship to Lockean secondary qualities, as normally understood, is that they are recognized, though not through the senses, as it were, quote from Locke, by us in an act of experiencing, close quotes. Comparing value judgments with Lockean secondary qualities can't explain which are binding, let alone how they seem to involve attributions of value or dignity. It's possible to say, I'm supposed to be hardwired into thinking that this is beautiful, but so what? I like destroying beautiful things. Or in the ethical case, I just like killing people. What that example show is that there's no necessary moral obligation to respect either conventional judgments or the effects of hardwired or evolved emotional reactions. Such respect seems rather to be one of the possible effects of our being free, in some sense, and we are not even required to believe that perverse reactions arrive because we claim to recognize something transcendental about the good we are rejecting. When Hermann Goering said that every time he heard the word geist, he flicked the safety catch of his revolver, he was not being a particularly anti-transcendentalist revolutionary. As he said himself, he was simply a revolutionary. He liked destroying. The comparison with Lockean secondary qualities won't do, so where does that leave us with truth in ethics and aesthetics? In truth about values, for truth about values is still on the table even if value predicates are simply invented, to borrow Mackey's appropriate phrase. For whether values exist in some kind of quasi-platonic realm or as divine attributes, or whether they're invented by Mackey and the rest of us, they still are what they are, and it's, impossible, and it's possible to lie about them, just as it's possible to lie about fictitious characters. If one lies about Alice in Wonderland, perhaps claiming she's Australian, 
One is lying about what is in the realm of discourse in which Alice exists, the true state of affairs. Yet the two types of objectivity of value with which we are now concerned differ in important in obvious respect. One obviously obvious family of its platonic forms for the best known instance would be mind independent. The other would be in some sense conventional and determined by whatever criteria a particular society uses, which might be rationality where possible, to establish what it might think of as mind-dependent objectivity. In the realms of fiction, morality and aesthetics, the latter two realms would in fact be parts of the former, that is, parts of the realm of fiction. Four, as-if descriptions and deceptions about morality. If value predicates are not very like Lockean second, secondary qualities, nor to be eliminated by genealogical investigation, how are they to be explained? Let us grant that there is a sense in which they have to be conventional, or to use current diction, acceptable to society or to its political elites. An increasingly popular expedient, going back in some form at least to Henry Sidgwick at the end of the 19th century, may be labelled the as-if approach. Although we, whoever we are, have long rejected mind independent value terms, we recognise that they are useful. And since usefulness is the only standard left us, we naturally appeal to that. Sidgwick's original problem <clears throat> was to reconcile happiness and duty, and he admitted that he has failed to do that. His solution, proposed with some hesitation, is that it's necessary to conceal the truth about morality from the general public, reserving it, that is, for the elites. Nor is such a suggestion out of order for a utilitarian, so long as lying or deceiving is held to be in the interest of the majority. It's acceptable. Beware, then, of trusting a professor of utilitarianism unless his life is different from, that is, better than, his theory. Cedric perhaps deserves pity as well as a raised eyebrow, and it's interesting to recall that Plato in the Laws takes what at first sight seemed an identical dilemma. He had been arguing that the just life is always more pleasant than the unjust, but he notes that if that were not the case, then the lawgiver would have to lie to maintain that it is more pleasant. This error is quite a different case from that of Sidric, since Plato thinks that he has good arguments for his own views, while Sidric has admitted that he hasn't any. Nevertheless, Plato's comment is interesting, implying that in the absence of transcendental and subjective moral norms, and only then, social cohesion, backed by what would conventionally be called lying, will become the dominant consideration. Sidgwick's apparently dishonest solution, in at least tacit form, infects almost the whole contemporary moral philosophy. As long ago as 1954, in a deservedly influential article, Elizabeth Anscombe argued that most contemporary moral discussion is vitiated because philosophers constantly employ moral terms which are appropriate and defensible, only if they're supported by a particular psychological and metaphysical infrastructure, whereas those who deploy them will reject such infrastructure. I myself have tried to follow up this problematic in the case of Kant, who is still widely regarded as having eluded it. Unfortunately, Anscombe's observations may have helped to promote a situation with which she would have had no sympathy. For if we accept their implications, there remain two alternatives. 
Either we return to physics, to metaphysics, if not to theology, and deny the autonomy of ethics, or we carry on with ethics in an unreal world to which Anscombe has never spoken. Why should we adopt the latter course? That brings us back to Sidwick and his judgment that to fail to come up with a coherent ethical theory is too dangerous to the social fabric. The nasty little secret must not be allowed to get out among the polloids. The apparently socially responsible attitude that Bernard Williams dismissed as government house consequentialism. One difficulty with Sidgwick's move, and with less bashful ones which have followed, is that in making it, philosophers, in quotes, cease to be philosophers, that is, traditionally people seeking the truth, the existence of which they now implicitly deny, becoming instead pragmatic social engineers. Sometimes they may disguise this by writing what are in effect two kinds of books. Thus John Rawls has written Quay Philosopher, A Theory of Justice and Quay's social engineer and ideologist, his political liberalism. An alternative strategy was adopted by the late Richard Rorty in abandoning a department of philosophy in favour of a department of comparative literature. As I've already indicated, I should say more about such departments, and hence that whether Rorty was consistent in making such a move. A bad effect of Anscombe's article seems to be that it encouraged people to believe that metaphysics of some pre-enlightenment sort is required for a robust and mind-independent objectivism in ethics, but without persuading them that such a position is philosophically tenable. So more and more moralists found themselves in the position of Sidgwick, believing transcendental objectivism in ethics impossible, while fearing with him that some form of what has been disingenuously called common morality is necessary for social cohesion. In those circumstances, the only remaining recourse is to pretend that ethical claims have firm foundation, while knowing that they do not. Some indeed have been more brave and denied the need for any agreed moral foundations in morality of state. That essentially is a position of roles in political liberalism, and is well summed up by Rorty's astonishing remark that the problem, he said, with Robespierre and Dantel, not to speak of Sophocles, Antigone and Creon, is that they didn't make sufficient efforts to strike a deal, close quotes. That's the most crass observation about the fundamental dilemmas of ethics that I've ever read. Five, nostalgia for foundations and literary study. So let me sum up the situation so far. There's a kind of sentimental nostalgia for foundations and for metaphysics. But that nostalgia can be abated by what I've called the as-if morality. Courage and self-control, for example, can't be shown to be virtues, but let's encourage the ordinary bloke in in his primitive belief that they are, or probably are. Happily, ordinary blokes won't won't appeal to metaphysics. Some of them may appeal to religion, normally in our society to Christianity. Others to a kind of pre-philosophical intuition that there really is a difference between good and bad, or right and wrong. Precisely the kind of belief which Plato in the Republic wants protected by dialectic and his theory of forms from sophistic subversion, and which Mackey believes all we need we all need to be freed from by some sort of quote error theory, which would teach us that such pre-philosophical delusions are rather like belief in Santa Claus, or some would say in God, something the mature human, that is, needs to grow out of. 
So some philosophers are nostalgic, at least, for the good effects of metaphysical foundationalism, while the ordinary bloke may still have increasing nostalgia you look at the religious belief. It's worthwhile to turn to another area of academic study to see how it's possible to be both nostalgic and be nostalgic for both of these things, but primarily perhaps because at the general cultural level for religion, and particular for Christianity. Though this might seem a digression, it'll shed light on the aesthetic questions that I've alluded several times, as also on Rorty's decision to abandon philosophy for comparative literature. Indeed, that very word, comparative, serves to introduce my story. And as we proceed, it'll be helpful to notice how the word nostalgia itself is used to diminish respect for truth. It'll come as no surprise if I say that the phrase comparative religion arouses mixed feelings. The comparison of religions can certainly be an informative and worthwhile academic practice, but it doesn't always work out like that. Comparatives too often know no religion well enough to present its finer points, and this ignorance could even be in evidence when they discuss the doctrines to which they themselves purport to subscribe. Naturally, as a Christian, I'm more aware of this when I listen to Christians talking about Christianity, but there's good reason to believe that Christians are not the only offenders. One of the effects of comparative ignorance is a blurring of distinctions, which is inclined to lead to the ecumenical view that all religions are equally beneficial, indeed that, in essence, they preach more or less the same thing, or at least can be reduced to the same thing. There is thus nothing specially true about any of them. Analogous difficulties arise in comparative literature, since few can be masters of all relevant material, and they conduct their comparative analysis under the banner of some overarching theory or ideology, which distorting lens brings me back naturally enough to the presentation, not in this paper of Christianity, but of the history of English literature, by which I mean literature written in English. In the United Kingdom, by the middle of the 19th century, not only much of the industrial working class, but a high percentage of the cultural elites had abandoned Christianity, some with rejoicing, others of more interest to our present discussion with varying degrees of regret. And from Matthew Arnold on, literary critics in particular tried to assert a religion of aesthetics, especially of poetry, in place of the religion of Christ. The beginning of this movement is often identified in Arnold's, po Arnold's poem on Dover Beach, though an important ancestor can be recognised in Shelley's Defence of Poetry 1821, though only published posthumously in 1840, and an early prophet of its risks can be found in the neoplatonically inclined coherence. Shelley, however, presents himself as a proto-Nietzschean who delights in, rather than regrets, the painting of Christianity, looking for the superiority of art to morality and banal distinctions between right and wrong, and calling for an end to the abjectness of Christian ethics. As founder of a different alternative tradition, Arnold was not so sure that the coming changes would be attractive, let alone exhilarating, though he hopes and believes that evolution of European culture into a post-Christian phase is inevitable. Famously in his On Dever Beach, we read of the, quote, melancholy, long, withdrawing roar of the sea of faith. Such hesitant hopes have often been supported by the erection of the literature of classical Greece into a basis of model anti-Christian culture, as recognisable not only in A.E. Hausman in the 30s of the last century, but more recently in the intentions of the prologue to the Constitution of the European Union. 
As a student in Cambridge in the 1950s, and the last generation to be taught this kind of classicism and its associated anti-Christian canon, I found it so deeply rooted and so taken for granted that I happily assumed rather than recognised its positively anti-Christian temper. By my time, most of the nostalgia of Matthew Arnold had evaporated, though for a few more years, notably through the influence of F.R. Lewis and respect at least for the Christian T.S. Eliot, it lingered among so-called Levites in the departments of English. In Matthew Arnold's religion of poetry and culture, value judgments crop up. Hence, some literature is, quote, better than other, and hence the construction of a moral canon. Arnold himself had more time for the, quote, decent Wordsworth than for the, quote, immoral Shelley or the opium-addicted Coleridge, while Byron's, quote, coarseness is said to run parallel to the philistinism of evangelical Christians and the obscurantism of Catholicism. Arnold concludes that, quote, those who cannot read Greek should read nothing but Milton and Wordsworth, to quote, and the inflated version of the view that the pre-Christian Greeks are better suited to replace the dying Christianity, yet clearly, as Arnold knew, such a culture would be possible only for the very few, though in the early 20th century, attempts would be made, especially by Gilbert Murray, to widen the appeal to, by extensive translation. That same century, as we have observed, also saw a literary substitute Christianity further developed, the aim being to transform the Philistine utilitarianism which was dominating British society. Lewis shared Arnold's nostalgia and reacted practically, working to construct, or rather to continue constructing, a purely English canon which was to be both moral and aesthetic. But again, the foundations were lacking. And by the time Lewis died in 1978, his lifestyle's work was already well-nigh demolished. Lewis's canon, including writers who first met his own demanding intellectual standards, he rejected all poetry that relied on sound and emotings, and who offered a moral substitute for religion. In the undergraduate pro program he approved, the so-called English moralist paper canonised selected poets, novelists and other writers, not all of them English, as post-Christian moral saints. The wider syllabus included Greek tragedy and translation, Dante and Tasso, and even St Paul, all acting as literary religion substitutes all propounding a version of that as-if foundationless morality which we more recently have seen has become so attractive to professed philosophers and ex-philosophers. Here indeed there might seem to be a practical alternative to metaphysics and theology, an alternative which adopts much of the language of theology drained of its religious context. This phenomenon was noticed by Charles Taylor in such lines of Wallace Stevens as, quote, after one has abandoned belief in God, poetry is the essence which takes its place as life's redemption, close quote. Yet this is a virtual redemption. Stevens is relying on an abandoned theology to support some sort of religion of culture. But he's not entitled to urge us to accept, except nostalgically, a set of linguistic and conceptual practices whose basis he himself has rejected, and as he implied already, and nostalgia itself may become the enemy of truth. Perhaps the most incongruous example of the blending of a, of a bleaker, unconsciously anti-Christian attitude with, with nostalgic memories of the lost world of Christian metaphysical morality is often not by a poet or literary critic, 
but by an eminent professor of classical philology in two passages of his autobiography. The first of which sounds to the more erudite reader like a cynical reprise of the tone of the final lines of Thucydides' account of the end of the Athenian expedition to Sicily in 415 BC. Thus, the Dover details his travels as president of Corpus Christi College, Oxford, and specifically of his dilemma when faced with the happy possibility of ridding himself of a certain to him obnoxious fellow, whose problems, however, were psychological rather than moral. Quote, it was clear to me, close quote, he writes, quote, that Trevor and the college must somehow be separated. And my problem was one which I feel compelled to define with brutal candor, how to kill him without getting into trouble. I had no qualms about causing the death of a fellow from whose non-existence the college would benefit, but I bought the prospect of receiving a coroner's jury, that is, lying, whose raison d'etre, of course, is to discover the truth. So even Dover is not entirely free from a moral and even Christian nostalgia. Indeed, he writes in the very same book, quote, innocent life is sacrosanct and the duty to protect it compelling. He adds, however, that, that, quote, respect for the life of even the worst behaved human seems to be an aberration of post-enlightenment Christianity. No prizes to those who recognise the undefended assumptions and confusions. The parallel of our digression into literary and academic history with Sidgwick's government house consequentialism with its more calculated deception can hardly be missed. Throughout the whole cultural tradition from Arnold through Santayana Stevens, as well as in Leibniz's hatred for Philistinism and utilitarianism, not to speak of Dover's coupling the hard man's version of Greek morality with something radically different, the prophets are perforce reduced to the same virtual redemption indeed to virtual truths. It's easy to understand that sensitive individuals regret the impossibility of defending goodness, even if still to uphold beauty. Yet whatever poetry can do, it can't per se redeem. And those who are persuaded that of itself it can redeem are promulgating a lie, deceiving both us and themselves. And note that, and themselves, for already in the Republic, Plato had noticed that in the end, the deceiver, the propagandist, comes to believe his own propaganda and his own deceptions. So we see a virtual world being created not only by philosophers, but by into literature and by literary critics, though for different reasons. And in the time of Levis, not to say of Eliot, that virtual world, unlike that of Sidric, was an honest, if regretful, attempt to salvage the, quote, truths of morality from the dispersal of the Christian religion brought by the Reformation. Such a construction, part based on snobbishness, is essentially asserted from on high rather than justified from theoretical roots. It could not last. Amorality necessarily following a cult of intelligible beauty, buttressed by dislocated fragments of a morality still bobbing on the receding, quote, sea of faith. And so, to replace the practical criticism of Iron Riches and Leavis, the so-called new criticism soon arrived in literary studies, orchestrated by the abandonment of history and tradition. With a still later arrival of an ideological fuel of chance to leave it in the newly formed canon of dead white males, the collapse would be all but complete.
The English canon of Leavis and Richards based itself on the value of judgments about the intellectual quality of particular poems and on the assumption that poems, like philosophical theories, are both coherent and born in a recognisable historical context. With the coming of the so-called new criticism, the historical background to the work under discussion being ignored, there resulted an ever-growing belief that since we couldn't determine the poet's intention, even approximately, or subject matter even, but only measure, for example, her or his lyricism, the criticism was effectively free, the critic was essentially free to write his own poem. The possible excellence of the author's original intent disappearing as irrelevant, though one would have supposed that this too an indeterminate matter of taste. Objective study being thus discounted, the way was open for later deconstructed phases, whereby history, intelligibility, authorial purpose were all to be replaced by some overarching thesis, often sub-Marxist or sub-Freudian, about what the poem must really and exclusively be about. The food liberation of the new critics became hijacked by interpretations governed either by theory neat or theory stretched up by genealogical account what must be the power-driven intentions, conscious or subconscious, of the author. All this, of course, produced exactly the effects Richards and Leavis would have deprecated, the absence of true or even plausible standards of aesthetic excellence. It was all a matter of sociologically driven taste. Jilly Cooper really was as good as Jane Austen, just as John Lewis was pretty well as good as Jesus. This, at least, was the subtext, even if only a few radicals pronounced it out loud. The effects of such theory-driven accounts of, in this case, the literary canon are inevitably alien to the notion of objective excellence or truth. As we found in as-if theoreticians of the post-Tidic philosophical schools and its more blatant successors, so the literary domain, similarly inadequate justification for keeping up the old ways, were asserted by those nostalgic conservatives who had lost the confidence to argue that Jane Austen really is better than Jilly Cooper, or even than Afrobain. Of course, if there are no standards in the field of literary excellence, we may also recognise that this can be socially inconvenient too, at least for professors who can profess no reason other than the claim to be described as, quote, cutting edge, while they are not themselves redundant, both culturally and financially. Thus, we've touched on in the literary domain, with no time left for art and music, the mentality of modern, modern moral philosophy first pointed out by Anscombe, but now in its post-Anscombe phase. Anscombe thought that the malaise of modern moral philosophy was the effect of not realising that ethics cannot be separated and has not historically been separated from its metaphysical and sometimes religious roots. Whereas in the post-Anscombean phase, the as-if mentality, with the claim that foundation is both impossible and unnecessary, is brazenly promoted. The unsuspecting public being thus left to assume that its traditional claims about the necessity of virtue, truth, truth, and even responsibility are adequately defended. <coughs> thus, in ethics and its original partner aesthetics, any concern for objective values has disappeared to be replaced by ideology to the extent that truth is held to be at least unknowable, certainly irrelevant, and probably mere fantasy. Instead, conventions must prevail, being governed in democracy by the wishes of the majority, or rather of those in the vanguard, to use Marxist terminology, who can pass themselves off as the majority spokespersons. Fox properly, Fox stay, but it ain't necessarily so.
In after virtue, considering the barbarians to be already inside the gates, Alistair MacIntyre fantasizes about a new concert of Trotskyans and Benedict. Elsewhere, in similar vein, he argues that serious humane studies are increasingly impossible in contemporary universities and ought to find a new or, or reconstructed home elsewhere. However unrealistic all this may appear, there is much evidence in favour of MacIntyre's indictment of what universities have been doing to the humanities. Instead of being centres in which truth is sought, they have often become drivers of the thesis that truth doesn't exist. Hence, their frightening tendency to become hotbeds of political correctitude, for convention is all, of grade inflation, for we are all or should be in the same intellectual boat, and of arrogance, for we alone understand that the mass of unenlightened folk are floundering in a morass of pre-philosophical or religious ignorance which they should be induced to disown, or better, to ignore. Finally, what happens if God gets back into the act? Thinking religious people will recognise the subhuman mindlessness of all this, but they're not the only ones who have sensed the problem. Perhaps faith may explain things, but it cannot justify them. That's why fundamentalists have to reject history and learning as well as the logic of those they dismiss as too clever by half. On the other hand, those still concerned for truth may prefer a different tack. Transcendent objective reality and a value system which depended on it existed well before Christianity, as I've already commented. That's why Iris Murdoch, for example, wanted us to return to Plato. For her, we don't need to abandon metaphysics, so long as we can satisfy ourselves that metaphysics need not point towards, or at least remain open to, religion. But Murdoch exhibits an ignorance, or at least a neglect, of the history of her own beloved Platonism. In Plato's original theory of transcendent values, the forms are a necessary condition for any understanding of moral virtues as well as for the stability of moral language. But in themselves, as Plato came to see, they are insufficient as explanatory factors. Their existence tells us what moral and aesthetic qualities are, but has nothing to promote them. For that, some kind of active principle or mind or what we would call God, capital G, and Plato, probably God's capital, small g, is required. For Murdoch, all specifically Christian, hence historical features of such transcendence, features which might encourage Christianity, have to be expunged, leaving her in the position which Plato himself had been forced to abandon, and which the Neoplatonists felt thought to be untenable. So Murdoch, bravely whistling in the metaphysical wind, agrees with Arnold Leavis and the rest, Though theism is impossible, there must be no resort to an amoral, value-free world above good and evil, no desperate substitution of beauty for goodness. Yet their good has now lost contact with the realities of existence among moving, planning, earthly people, remaining only as a paradigm in heaven, Plato came to foresee and to regret versions of that vision. I glanced earlier at the view of George Steiner that where we have intelligibility and therefore the possibility of distinguishing truth and false, we necessarily have God. I am less convinced than Steiner that an argument of this kind can be made about all truths, and Steiner will be hard pressed to argue in this way for a transcendent God. What I do want to argue, however, and here I am in curious agreement with the as if boys and girls is that if some kind of theism is built on Plato's account of value terms, whether ethical or aesthetic, and for him there's only notional distinction, is necessary if we are not to become pragmatic liars a la Sidwick. 
Yet even Cedric does believe in something like truth, even if only that he has himself failed. As I've argued, you can hardly deny the existence of truth without assessing it to be true that there's no truth. But the practical thrust of arguments about truth is often that at least in matters of value, since we can't discover it, we have to invent it, which entails that moral and aesthetic truth exists only in a notional world. Obviously, there remains the logical possibility that a fictitious world I or others construct really is identical with the world independent of my inventive powers. And in practice, assumptions like that are regularly made, as it is assumed by many that legal obligations are necessarily morally binding. But this is as clearly fallacious as the more basic, desiderate purist claim that since we can't know what's true, there's no such thing as truth. Some form of theism may provide an answer to some of our dilemmas, for if God exists and is necessarily of a certain type, then moral and aesthetic values exist are inexplicable without reference to God. While the while vice and arguments are, are explicable in terms of God's absence. One of the stranger philosophical positions which have been around since the 17th and 18th centuries is that even if there is a God, that makes no difference to the nature of the world as we ordinarily experience it. Known as deism, this view depends on the claim that all we could know of God is that he starts the universe going. This because we can't find any other explanation as to why there's a universe at all. However, quasi-scientific arguments are not the only possible moves towards claiming that God, and neither certain kind of God, actually exists and must therefore be morally significant. We notice in arguments about assisted dying that theists tend to be more opposed to seeing doctors as executioners. This points towards the Augustinian view that the God hypothesis enables to solve, or at least emasculate, various otherwise insoluble problems, such as the reality of good and evil, better and worse in the world in which we live, and that the more such puzzles it solves or emasculates, the more plausible it becomes. There's no time to develop that argument further now. What we need to observe, however, is that just as, as if moral qualities are not moral courage, what are not moral qualities, so as if God, even if claimed to be Christian, is of no philosophical use. Some Christians seem to think with, with Feuerbach that God is a projection of the human mind. That may be pragmatically helpful in enabling those who hold it to live in a comforting delusion and to convey their delusions to others. But only a notion, but, but only but a, a notional or toy mousetrip won't catch mice. So where do we finish up? First, it's important to deny it's impossible to deny truth without asserting it. But second, we need to distinguish between different types of truths. Very often can observe descriptive truths which tell us in how a limited way what we may need to know for some particular purpose or at a way station on the road to further knowledge. In the Parmenides, Cato made a claim rather like George Steiner's, saying that if there are no platonic forms, then dialectic, that is, honest philosophical thinking, is impossible. For then we literally don't know what we are talking about, especially when we think about evaluations. That's a bit reckless and brought too broad brush. We can certainly predict what will happen if we take certain kinds of action and then check our prediction. Plato himself seems to have taken some time to recognise that discussion of the truth about possible facts must be separated from discussion of possible values. For in the domain of values, as distinct from events, 
we must choose between three options. Thus, the deliberate and direct killing of an innocent in quotes is neither A, neither good nor bad, but only a fact which an accurate description as of any other event can be proposed. Or B, it's bad. Or C, we can pretend with a lie that it's bad. We may be able to persuade people to accept any one of these options, or even more than one at the same time. My point, however, is that if there exists a good God, there is no choice, only one plausible option. Killing the innocent is both is bad and should be avoided wherever possible. But in no other scenario is such an option compelling. Certainly killing the innocent could not be could not be known to be truly bad. In the absence of God, any pre-philosophical claims about the truth of its badness would remain in the world of opinion. Indeed, they are ultimately indemonstrable, and in my view, would be false. Thus, if Jesus were God, his recorded remark, I am the truth, would make eminent sense for both the ethics and aesthetics. Whereas, we don't do God would imply at least in all evaluative cases, that we don't do truth either. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor. That was wonderful. I'm sure everyone learned very much from that. And it's now up to the floor to put your questions to Professor Rist. Thank you very much for the talk. It was a lot of ground covered a short period of time. Um, I had a question about I kind of these individuals who will say that language constrains truth and truth is beyond language in a way that the senses can even be contradictory. So it's not even pointing to a truth, and that logic itself is a constraint of language rather than uh, the conclusion that just naturally follows. Through, through a premise, through premises. Um, I was wondering, what is that self-defeating, or what's the kind of the goal of that, or does that lead to uh, some kind of a vagary in relativism, or uh, like, just like theism, where there's no, it doesn't go anywhere. Like it, just, uh, it just kind of says, well, we have to ignore that, and just assume that, and we from there. I can speak more on that. Yeah, um, thanks for the question. Um, underlying it, uh, there's, uh, there's a point which I certainly like to make. It's one of the real oddities of most professional philosophy in the Anglo-American world, is that people are constantly saying that, that all truth is propositional. This seems to be totally false. Um, it depends on the belief that, that, that language is identical with the thing to which it refers. Um, which isn't true either. The example I gave about the description of somebody, you can list his attributes and then say, is that all there is to him? Is there a refutation of that? Um, there's absolutely no reason to believe this, um, this claim about, um, about language. Um, and in our ordinary experience, we know all the time that there are things which we would regard as genuine experiences a, a true state of mind that we have, for example, looking at a landscape or something like that, which we simply cannot describe. And that's because descript descriptions never succeed in capturing the object, precisely because they're not identical with the object. Language is always going to produce a limited or reductive version of what you're talking about. 
And in fact, the problem, one of the major problems with philosophy has always been um, that problems get solved apparently by reducing their size to a state where they'll fit into the pattern. And that pattern now is usually linguistic. But as I say, it doesn't, you don't have to be a Wittgenstein, as it were, to realize that this is simply denied so that you know it happens to you every day. I, mean, I, I just looked at the moon, for example, uh, by the side of the, the Ferris wheel out here. And I could have said something about that, which I was much impressed by. But I couldn't capture the experience that I had. And yeah, but I certainly would not want to deny that was a real experience. So it's not, if anyone starts to tell you anything like that, that knowledge has to knowledge has to be prepositional, that's just wrong. Um, it, it, the error had already been pointed out very clearly by Plato in at least two places. Uh, in one place, he says, how do we know how to get from Athens to Larissa? And the answer to that, he says, well, you can get, you can talk to somebody who's been down the road and he'll tell you how to go. Um, and that's true. That would be a true opinion, he says. But it's not the same experience as you have if you've been down the road yourself before and then want to do it again. You know when, when you've been there the first time that that is, that's right. The other case, even if that man is telling you the truth, there's a doubt about it, you're not sure. The second case, and it's a very important one which you've mentioned elsewhere, is what happens when a crime is committed and someone sees it. He reports to a jury. He tells the jury things about it. But what he can't do is convey to the jury what he experienced, what he saw. He can say things about it. In other words, we need to distinguish between knowing something and knowing about something. And I mentioned this actually during the paper itself because it's possible but it's certain all the time. We, we know things about uh, old stones, moral beliefs, anything you like almost. Without, we don't have to claim that we know them essentially or anything like that. And I wanted to point out then, of course, that this you know, doesn't have anything to do with whether there are sensitive things or not. Um, but it is an important point. Um, and again, uh, philosophy is a, you have to remember, I think, that philosophy is a reductionist art. And what you've got to do is, one, recognize when you come against a brick wall and not try and find your way around the back, as it were, and that other start again. But also, you've got to recognize that you can't answer some kinds of questions. You can point toward the answers to these kind of questions. Um, and, and, and you should not, therefore, try and solve the problem by rephrasing the difficulty in language which enables you to give a proper answer. A very good book about that sort of been written recently by a man which is here in Scotland somewhere, I think, called Chapel. Uh, the book's called Knowing What to Do, and he talks about this as a general problem in moral philosophy recently, that um, people just, many philosophers just re-describe the problem and then say they solved it. Because they haven't done any such thing, but they can't easily persuade that they have. This is exactly what I'm trying to get at. When someone says this, this works, uh, what the theologians call orthopraxy, it may, it may work, but it doesn't mean to say that you know the right answer to underneath the foundation. It just happens to solve a particular problem with another view. So, what one's calling for here for among philosophers is. is the ability to recognize that the, 
in some sense, a lot of the basic questions can't really be answered. You can point towards an answer. That's probably the best you can do in one of my basic. But that doesn't mean you should say these questions are unimportant. Because if you do that, you're left with this foundationless world, which I was talking about in the paper. Uh, thank you for the talk. Uh, it's very insightful, and I completely agree that without appealing to God, there is no foundation in morality. But uh, let me just play a um, devil's advocate here. Uh, some people might say that moral truths simply exist just like numbers do exist, yeah. and uh, or mathematical laws do exist. For example, two plus two equals four, um, and two plus two equals four necessarily is true and is conceivably true, even if God doesn't exist. And similarly, moral law would be similarly, uh, you know. Um, Necessarily true and conceivably true, even if God doesn't exist. How would you answer to that? Yeah, um, I think you would ask yourself whether the truths in mathematics are necessarily the same kind as the truths in morals or, or aesthetics. Um, the point you raise actually has been, is, has been brooded around quite a lot in the rich contemporary talk, actually, um, particularly by Derek Parfit in his most recent book. Um, um, he claims that um, that that, uh, that truths of morality are objective but have no ontological standing. And I just don't understand what that distinction means. Um, um, it, it, no, because they look in some ways like mathematical propositions. That's true, no doubt. They also look in some ways like they've knocked in secondary qualities, but that doesn't mean to say they are the same as the secondary qualities. So it's up to someone who tries to make out that, they, that you can explain moral language in the same way as you can explain mathematics. Um, the ball's in their court. Why, why, I have no reason why I should believe that. Um, they, they look to me completely different. Um, they produce different kinds of effects, for example. I mean, when I see someone with other things behaving badly, it makes me react in a very different way. Now, why would it do that? Well, it says when I see someone making a mathematical mistake, I think it's a complicated mathematical mistake. That's the best I can do to answer that, but it seems to me that the ontology here is quite different. Incidentally, that the problem that you've raised historically does get back right to the beginning of philosophy, because in, in, in Greek philosophy, the continual problem about states mathematical objects and such in mathematics, and which people, mathematicians, have continually wanted to say have an objective reality independent of the human mind. They won't pursue it further. And Bertrand Russell used to claim at one point in his life that you could. And the number series are—they're are, waiting to be discovered in the same way America is waiting to be discovered by Columbus. Um, later on, he gave up that idea, actually. But you can see why he would say it. Um, but it doesn't really help with our issue because we that, the relation of us of mathematical truths or non-truths is that not the same. So why should we believe that one can be simply reduced to the other? Thank you. Um, if I can piggyback on that question, perhaps use a dirty word in some circles, apologetics. Do you see the, the issue primarily as, with ethics, without God, um, an ontological issue, which you perhaps suggest or gesture toward, or frankly an epistemic one? Because I know a lot of atheists have embraced a more brute facts argument for morality, or more platonic without theism. So is the issue just, you have these ideals, but we just can't get access to them, so there's no way that you can know the ontological reality. Yeah. Uh, 
No, I think it is, it is an authoritative issue. Uh, certainly, I, I do think that, yes. Um, I'd have to work to hold that position. What confuses people, I think, about this is that people who hold, say, some sort of religious account of why of difference in good and evil and so on, and people who just, as were, feel that they, they ought to do certain things which will reduce evil and makes good, is that if they're pushed, they can't justify it. It's not that they don't act well. This is the point that I think is really important. When people constantly say, Oh, you can, you can, um, many uh, atheists do far more good in the world than the average Christian. I don't know if that's true or not, but even if it were, it's irrelevant to the point that I'm trying to make. Because the point I'm trying to make is they may do good, but ultimately they're doing it for reasons which are unintelligible. With what we're talking about in the end is justification, not good or bad action. And if you're talking about justification, this is where ethics has to depend, in my view, on metaphysics, both of the external world, as it were, and of the human subject itself. Um, it's interesting that some, even some very great philosophers seem to have got very confused about this, or at least to be talking in two sides of their mouth, and this has produced arguments in contemporary discussion as well. The best example of this is Aristotle. Aristotle is usually referred to by, by many people as someone who, who's trying to defend the autonomy of ethics, the ethics outside, um, outside metaphysics. And he certainly makes statements that seem to imply that at times. But elsewhere, it's quite obvious that he's, he's not following his own rules. He, he, his ethics does depend upon a metaphysics, and it's a metaphysics of basically of a platonic type, that is, of an entire transcendental world. The same from the rising step with Kant, exactly the same thing that happens there. He, he tries to get Christian results without Christian premises, or he denies the Christian premises. But the arguments just don't work. And they say you can find them contradictory, they don't solve the problem. Unless you think that morality is really obeying the rules or some other kind, then it's simply solved the problem by dissolving it by reducing it to something else. So that you can see this, this, this is a real difficulty. Because, and I think in a way it's a difficulty that people, it arises because people don't want to face it. They don't want to say that we're dependent on metaphysics in a certain way. Uh, they think that we can uh, separate the realms of discourse and keep out of the sun. I remember looking at an article once by Nora Neal, I think it was, where she was trying, where this problem comes up, and she says in a footnote there that um, this is really difficult unless you go back to some metaphysical position, which is out. <laughs> and then, and that is, that's an honest statement that most people don't say which is out, they just don't raise a question at all. But they do, in fact, make assumptions which you can say, how do you justify that would, would call for some kind of metaphysical explanation. So it's not a question of whether people do good or bad, it's a question of whether they understand what they're doing or not. That's the issue I'm talking about. In a way, it's a purely theoretical issue, but I don't think it is a purely theoretical issue, but in the end, if you, if you can't justify it, in the end, you'll stop doing it. Uh, and so it'll gradually get whittled away, as it were. Um, some of you may have read Dad Gregory's book called The Unintended Reformation, in which he talked, in which he argued that considerable detail and historical length that the modern secularism is the ultimate result of the activities of Lutheran Calvin. Not that he would claim it's what Lutheran Calvin wanted to produce, far from it, he knows perfectly well that isn't true at all. But the effect has been that. And if you go further down that road, there's of course many other postmodernists now saying, 
We've got unreasonably to go further down that road. The, the option really is nihilism. And then that's, I mean, this point has been made by McIntyre, by a number of others. I'm really just following along the lead here. It was first of all made, in fact, the best discussion of it ever made was it was in Plato's Republic, Book One. The argument was Thrasymachus. Because there, Thrasymachus wants to say that morality is invented by the elite in order to confuse and control the majority. And that's the position which Socrates tried to make. Now, in other words, there is really a value-free universe, just like Sirica There really is a value-free universe, but it's convenient. In his case, we really want to manipulate people, but it could be to do better good than that. It's convenient to delude people into believing it was a moral universe. Of course, they will act in certain ways. They do that. That, that may be good or bad. But the, that's the basic of If you really think it through, this is my argument, that you've got to answer Thrasymachus's point. And I don't think anybody in the history of philosophy has said this up as sharply as Pecker does in that book. I read an article in that book when I was 15 years old, and I'm still regarding it as my thing that's taught me more about philosophy than anything else. So if you want to learn about the problem, what the alternatives are, read the argument with Thrasymachus. You'll find that Thrasymachus is tricked, of course, in some cases, something argues you even better. But that again refers to what came up in my paper. Because the point about Thrasymachus is he is tricked, but he, doesn't, he can't understand what's gone wrong. It's because he's, he, he's got so muddled that he can't even recognize why he's been defeated. He says at the end of the book, okay, here's, that, that nice for you, um, happy for you. But he doesn't believe he's been defeated. He doesn't know why he's lost the argument. He doesn't. He, he's not even able to recognize a bad argument when he sees one. That, that that's the situation he's into, and it's something well worth thinking about. So, if you want to do any, any ethics, you might, well, I would say read the book by the Republic. If you want to do more, read it again. This is less of a philosophical question and more of a practical one. Um, which is that I uh, was in the English department at the university and um, found that often it was less a question of being told that there was no truth, in fact, when it came down to it, but just that what I was proposing as the value system or the, the, that there was a truth was totally wrong. And in fact, the ideology, usually the Marxist ideology, the power brought the um, motivations guiding it, the, essentially the, um, the new criticism of it, as you picked out, coupled with the uh, the readings which were just so uh, affirming that everything was done through power or because of a Marxist system. They, um, I was frequently put up against something which was a claim that there was the truth, but that it was their truth or nothing else existed. Uh, how do you respond? <laughs> Or how should I have responded? Because I had no idea how to try and say, well, actually, this is a truth that is true, and your truth is just not true. Got a bit stuck. So, so what that is a question. Um, what, what do you, um, is it how you handle this situation? Is that the question? Yeah. Well, um, I, my, my, my basic answer is, to deal with anybody who you think is misinterpreting or, or violating a text, you've got to know the text as well as they do. You've got to assume they probably do know the text fairly well. You need to know it better. Now, this, this relates to a general problem in studying history of humanities. And for example, I always tell even master's level students, 
don't read secondary literature including mine yet. Wait until you're somewhere near understanding what the original guy says before, before you start to do that. Otherwise, you'll be swept away. He, 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 know, he or she knows more than you do to begin with. So if, you, if you're wondering whether it's right, then what you've got to do is go through the original again, read it with care, see what you think it means. Then what you can do is read the thing through, look at places where what you think it means differs from what the reader, the ideological reader is giving you that type it means. You will find sometimes that you will agree with the other person. But if you know the text very well, you'll find in many cases you won't agree with it. And you're, then you're in a position to say, this person has made a mistake here. They read something into the text which just, is, there's no reason to suppose it's there except that you want it to be there. But it does depend on knowing the primary text as well as you possibly can. That's the tough. When I was a, an undergraduate in Cambridge, we were uh, standing behind the shoulders of classic students with the ghost of A.E. Houseman. And the ghost of A.E. Houseman was saying, what matters is ratio et res ipsa. That is, ratio meaning think, and think about the thing in front of you, not what someone said about the thing in front of you. After a while, you, you may feel confident enough, you can then turn to the other guy and say, that you're right here, you're wrong there. How do you show me I'm right about this? There are fags. Unfortunately, one of the problems with academia is that we live in a world of half-truths. Academics tell everybody else like to be applauded. And you, the easiest way to get applause is to tell half-truths. If you tell things that are simply wrong, people will pretty well quickly pick that up. But if you've got something right, you can keep on focusing on that and forget about the bits you've been wrong. Um, so you, you've got to avoid that being, as it were, railroaded in that kind of way. Um, it's a hard discipline. Um, but if you don't do it, what you'll find is that these fads just go around in circles. I mean, a lot of stuff that's being said now in this area was what it was said in the 60s, I can remember. I was still already teaching in the 60s. We've now gone around the circle. It's a bit different now, once more people have been built into the act. But essentially the problems are the same. Um, and after a while, people tire of them and they go on something else. Um, but you, you should draw a couple of conclusions from this because people jump on bandwagons all the time in academia for various reasons. Often some of them are pretty discreditable, i.e. they want a job in the place. But other times, because they're not, they don't, they don't take enough effort to think the thing through, they, they follow somebody who looks brilliant, looks exciting, and so on and so forth. My first academic article was an article about the date of Plato's Timaeus. And it attacked the theory which had absolutely swept the board at that time, that I that this was a late that, that this was not a late dialogue of Plato's. I argue that it was a late dialogue. Nobody believed me at the time. But 15 years later, nobody would entirely have disbelieved me either. It was gone around the circle. No really new evidence had been adduced from the text of Plato. It's just that people started to look at other bits, so to speak. Someone came up to me 15 years after that article and said, do you still believe what you said about that? And I said, yeah, of course I do. And he said, yeah, well, so do I now. But he didn't before because people who are very influential in the field, they, they were inspiring teachers and so on and so forth. Inspiring teachers are pretty dangerous very often. They, could, they, they, they will carry you along some of the way you may want to go, but you may get dragged on a good deal further than you don't want to go. You've got to be careful. These people are human beings, they make mistakes, they're driven by arrogance, pride, whatever, Augustine inequality you want to mention. You've got to be aware of that. 
the only solution to reading humanities in the end is to get to know the text you're thinking about better than the critic. That's the only, and, that, and the only way to do that is to keep on reading it and thinking about it. it raises it, so it doesn't see. Um, I just wanted to mention a question in relation to um, COP26 and uh, the, the increasing presence of uh, climate emergency as a concern, and whether that, um, at least in my experience, in terms of the actions of people, not necessarily the fundamentals of moral relativism as an advocacy, but in terms of the actions in the day to day and the way that people act and think, it seems to be shifting around beyond a, a relativist position and, and one that appeals to some yes. truth. And I was wondering whether you could speak to that, or is that just. Yes, I mean, obviously, the strict relativism say who cares whether it's climate change or not. It doesn't affect the next generation, but I saw the out there this way and quite all that. Um, but they don't do that. They assume that there's a, a, wrong, a, a, there's a wrong attitude and also a wrong moral attitude. There, there's, people here are saying, people here would normally claim that they wouldn't want to follow moral rules, particularly about sexual ethics, for example. Um, but here they're appealing that that's just wrong. It may be just wrong, but once you've said that about one thing, you can't limit it to the area in which you've said it. There are other areas too where things may be just wrong, as it were, and I would believe they are, in fact. So, in fact, if you want to push a cause of any kind politically, you've got to say something that's just wrong. It's no good saying, oh, well, this is not, we, we, we think this, the other guys think that, you know, we want you to come up with us. You've got to insist on absolute truth in this area. And you may be right, it may be absolutely right and wrong, whatever you're proposing. But if you do it for one thing, you've got to widen the sphere. People often complain about contemporary Catholic Christianity that spent too much talking about sexuality. But the issue about sexuality is not just about sexuality, it's about certain norms. And if, if, there, if the church were to be wrong about those norms, it'll be wrong about all sorts of other things as well. You can't pick these areas into one bit and another bit and another bit and another bit and assume we, we, here we apply a strict theory, there we're relative. That's just incoherence. Um, actually, uh, incoherence is exactly the word I want to talk about in this connection anyway. I mean, my wife and I have just written a book about this which will appear in a year's time, um, in which we try to argue that modern Western man, this is picking up thing of McIntyre originally, modern Western man is full of ideas which he thinks add up. They think they're coherent, but they, they couldn't possibly be coherent. Some come from Christianity, some come from Freudian, some come from Marx, some from Hobbes, some only come from Mystic East or whatever. They're all put in the head, you think one head are coherent, but you're not. And one way you can test this, and I've tried this out on graduate students a number of times, and some of them admit that it works. Ask yourself whether, just pick four areas of moral concern. Doesn't matter what they are. Just, I, I, this I think bad, this I think good, and so on. In each case, argue why you think what you think. Try and go back to what is your basic position to let you to say, let's say that, the, that the, let's say capital punishment is, 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 is wrong. Why do you hold that? Well, I think most people, if they're honest, and it's very difficult to be honest because you give yourself a bit of a doubt too easy. If you're honest, in some cases you'll find you're holding P and not P at the same time. In other words, that the arguments you use to defend this will prevent you from holding that. It's worth, this is a thought experiment, this is well worth engaging with. It's far disturbing. Um, and in fact, it, it's impossible to know the right answer to this question. Um, the Stoics used to say that you could be a wise man for five years without knowing it. 
Um, and, and what, what they meant by that, this is a reasonable thing to say. And it's, it, it's a reasonable thing to say because you could only know it if over a period of five years, which you couldn't evaluate, you could look at all your actions and see if they were completely coherent. But you can't do that. So you can't get into the position they were saying if the right position. Nevertheless, you can try to do that. And as I say, many people clearly hold views which depend on radically different basic first principles. And at least you can begin to clear some of that out of the way. Thank you, Professor. That was a very inspiring talk. So you mentioned briefly just now that Martin Luther, John Calvin, they were those leading figures in the current secularization. But I also have another figure in my head, which is a Darwin's principle, evolutionary theory. Because if evolution theory seems like anything can evolve, human beings can evolve, and the moral truth can evolve as well. Like some of the theologians have another century that argue no, because human beings can evolve, but sexual ethics can also evolve, and there's one of the reasons why they define politics, human feeling. So do you think evolution theory also played a huge uh, impact in dismantling the concept of truth, and how should we argue against people who use evolution theory to argue that? Truth can change, so even doctrine of church can change. If it's on sexual ethics or on salvation issue, that sort of thing. How should we like, argue against those people who will say evolution theory allow these kind of changes? Make them like, seem incoherent, as you said, to be coherent. Right. So the use of Darwin's evolution theory can maybe be used to say moral truth is going to evolve and there's no absolute truth. Can I, I didn't quite understand what you were saying, but are you, are you talking about the notion that moral truth can, can evolve in some sense? Yeah. Well, of course, in some sense they can and have. I mean, um, this, for example, this, this recent growler thing I've got about slavery is a good example in place. Um, everybody accepted slavery until comparatively recently, and in many parts of the world they still do. But it's, it's a false inference from that that we, only, we are any better than they are. Uh, we, may have, we may have improved something over time. And another point about that which is relevant. Generally speaking, in the past, and I think we, there has been a real advance here in philosophy, actually. In the past, people were interested primarily in the virtue or vice of particular individuals, almost pulled out of a social context. Whereas now, um, we are rightly also adding to that discussion of what we call um, systemic injustice, for example, are the institutions which are wrong. See, in the ancient world, nobody thinks, I mean, there's nothing in Jesus never condemned slavery and science at all. It, it's, it's not part of his world, as it were. It doesn't mean to say he thinks that slavery is a good thing, of course. And, I, and I'm not going to make any comment about what he thought about slavery, but he, it just doesn't come up. Um, but after a while, for various reasons that were, until you learn more and such like, it seems to change. And one of the things that has changed is that we are more conscious of the effect of institutions in a way that they were not. And I think that's true. This is, a, this is probably really the 20th century advance to some extent. Um, there's not much evidence for it early on. Of course, they do talk about good and bad institutions. They've always done that. But they don't concentrate enough about the relationship of man to his culture. Um, and even for, just I'll give you an example of where this is still ignored. It's generally said now that a lot of the confusion that was caused in the Catholic Church by Vatican II is because there was no attention to culture in, in, that, in those documents. There was, there was talk about the virtues and vice of individuals, 
almost nothing about culture at all. About um, there was no what called theology of culture. People tried to build one twenty years later and put it back into the council, but it's not really there. It should be there, no doubt. But this is something which people have become more conscious of in the last 20, 25 years. And that process will continue. Another factor, of course, involved in this is that, um, as I said initially, we may often be talking about things which we can't get the right answer because we haven't got the data. A great deal of mistake about what was caused about, for example, the relations between males and females in society is was caused by a mistake, misunderstanding of the nature of the process of conception. And that wasn't clearly changed in, in, in modern society in 1829 when Bayer discovered the ovaries. They'd been known about once in the past, one in the third century BC, the knowledge was lost. So the assumption was always that. That, as Aristotle says, and Thomas and other people too, inevitably, um, a, a newborn is the product primarily of the father. And so he, he is a superior being in that sense. All the, all the mother does provides the matter, nothing else. In other words, the mother is a nurse before and after birth. Now that was generally believed, and if, if, and if, if you believe that, you're going to construct all sorts of theories about the relations between men and women, which you wouldn't do if you didn't have that knowledge. It's a very good example of something where a fact, which is not a philosophical fact, affects the way philosophical questions are discussed. <laughs> An extreme example is for those who are patristically minded, is that in, in the third century origin says something like that, 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 that Greek philosopher that failed to solve the problem of evil. He, he admits that some of them have done, it, have done a very good job on this. They, they, they made real progress, and some of the very able, able guys, he doesn't want to say to stop doing it, being philosophers, he wants anything like that. But he says the reason, quite simply, why they can't solve this problem is because to solve the problem of evil, you need real data. In his case, he thinks in this case, you need to know about the fall of the angels. If you don't know about the fall of the angels, which you can't get by natural reason, you cannot solve the problem of evil. That would be, if, if that were true, it would be another good example. But anyway, even, even at the theoretical level, it's a good example. We, we do learn more, but usually what we learn more is extra philosophical stuff which can be fed, in, fed into the philosophical activity. And that's what leads us to see the changes, and apart from, of course, from the striking. Awareness of, of incongruity, as it were. I mean, the first people like, like Wilberforce, who tried to an end to slavery, thought they were actually incongruous to think that Christians should back these kind of things. But the, we have to recognize that people didn't think that before. And, they're, and they're, they were like us in that sense, they, we can say they're warring ignorance. But we're probably warring ignorance too. There's just no reason for us to go around with that and virtue signaling about how much better we are than fear of the past or how much more moral we are. You judge a relations person's morality in relation to the society in which you live. That's not telling you what the ultimate truths are, of course, but when you're talking about judging individuals, you've got to think about individuals in time and place. If you don't do that, you're just I think that's all we've got time for this evening. Um, please join me in thanking Professor once again.